if you're not aware, we have some amazingly gifted, passionate, talented people who work with our children here. And I had the opportunity to sit and be kind of a fly on the wall at Children's Church a few weeks ago. And it's, it's impressive the way that they love our kids and the way that they are giving them very not watered down gospel, but in very clear terms. It's a really cool thing. So if you see some of them, please feel free to thank them and encourage them because they're doing amazing work that's uh, really important. So they're going to go back there and have a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of fun right here. We'll have a competition at the end to see who did better. Um, well, now that I'm a full pastor and I'm ordained, I can do uh, dumb things like take on challenging topics. So today we're going to talk about singleness. So no way that can go wrong. But we had a, a series on marriage and family. And several of us on the staff were talking and Jeff were talking. like, well, we probably should have a, a day where we actually talk about singleness and a biblical view of that. Because whether or not you realize it, about slightly over 20% of our, our family here, our body, are not married. So that's a large chunk of our congregation. Um, so we're going to be looking at that today. We're going to be kind of uh, dipping into a few different scriptures in 1 Corinthians 7. And then uh, looking at another one a little bit later on in the service. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip them open to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, there's also the scriptures printed on your insert in your bulletin, and they'll pop up magically on the screen behind me as well. Uh, so read with me God's word, starting in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 7 through 9, that we're going to skip down to 17. I wish that all were as I myself am. This is Paul talking, and he's talking about being single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then jumping down to verse 17, it says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you that you give us your word, that we're not left guessing what to do or how to live our lives. Uh, but Lord, you actually give us direction. You speak to us in a word that is living, that is active, that is from you. Uh, I pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to understand it well today, that we would learn to, to love each other well, to care for each other, and to live a faithful, biblical life that honors you uh, for your glory and for our good. So would you open our hearts and our minds Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Um, and be with us in this time, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So there's no better way to start off a uh, message about singleness than to tell a story about me being married. But that's what I'm going to do, so bear with me. When I got married to Christy, I sometimes felt like maybe I was in over my head with her family. A little background. She has an amazing family that I love dearly. Um, they're all pretty smart. Both of her parents are educators. Um, both of her brothers, pretty smart guy. Her oldest brother uh, got a double major in philosophy and biology, you know, to challenge himself because a single major in philosophy wouldn't be enough. He then went on to get a seminary degree. Why not? Sure. So he got a master's and then he went on to get his PhD in bioethics. And now as a college professor teaching bioethics, he's really dull. He's not a very smart guy. Her other brother, majored in philosophy, went on to get a seminary degree and is now in a PhD program for philosophy. 
So if you can imagine sitting at the dinner table, there's me. I really like soccer and <laughs> doing things with people and being a goofball. And, and I had this really good equation figured out in high school and college. I did better in seminary. But how can I do the least work possible to get the best grades possible that was kind of my tag. So we were coming from slightly different worlds, and it was hard to sometimes not feel like I didn't quite fit in there. So you have this dialogue going on of, well, I think that some of the bioethicists are applying Kantian's private ethics to the public sphere, which is a inv- really invalid use of his logic. Well, yes, but if you can consider Aristotelian logic and method of discourse, then I'm sitting there like, all right, dictionary, discourse, <laughs> Kant, Okay, Google, who is, if I had a dictionary, a thesaurus, and the complete idiot's guide to philosophy, in about half an hour, I would catch up to their first point. Oh, I know. Now now I can play. Now I can contribute. I was in over my head. I did not know what was going on. I maybe understood every third word when they said, like, the. Oh, I I know that one. I felt like, man, I, I don't fit in here. I don't really belong. These people are pretty different than me. What does it look like for me to be a part of this family? And can I even do it? Well, I learned that maybe they're not quite as clever as they thought. And they just like to use big words. And I'm fitting in much better because I know you were all worried about that. But you know, sometimes people can feel like that when they come into our church. We have a great church. I would say it's probably a family church. There are a lot of couples There are a lot of children, which are amazing blessings from God that I am grateful for. But if you come in and you're single, for many reasons, because that can cover someone who's never been married, who's divorced or separated, who's widowed. If you come in and you're single, you might look around and be like, do I really fit in here? There's a lot of people here who aren't like me. And even some of the things that we talk about, you know, we probably talk about marriage and families a lot because it's where a lot of our people are. Well, does God have a plan for my life too? So today we're going to pause for a little bit and look at, okay, what does the word say about singleness? What is God's view of it? And how do we maybe sometimes need to be corrected by God's word of what our view is of singleness sometimes and to get a clearer insight to what he really says and how we can live and learn to love one another well. Uh, A few disclaimers. One, I'm not single, whether you realize it or not. So it's a little bit challenging to preach on singleness. I've met with several of our single members and heard some great stories and spent a wonderful time with them. But that's a disclaimer. Also, through great scheduling, we very on purpose scheduled this to come right after Valentine's Day. (laughs) That's not true. Or as many of my friends like to refer to it, Singles Awareness Day. (laughs) So here we are talking about singleness the day after Singles Awareness Day. But it's also a topic where there can be a lot of wounds, where there can be a lot of hurtful things that have been said, hard experiences. So I say, let us graciously buckle in together and try to be led by what God's Word says this morning. So first we're going to look at the first point A little bit tongue-in-cheek, we say singleness is not purgatory. Singleness is not purgatory. Okay, what does that mean? Singleness is not this place of waiting that should be escaped from as soon as possible so you can get to the promised land of being married. 
But often, that's kind of how we can view singleness in the church. That's not really what Paul's talking about. Paul actually says, you know, I'd rather a lot more people be like me, single. You probably haven't heard that recently. I wish we had more singles around here. I wish more people were single and would stop getting married. But Paul highlights it. This is not a a bad thing. What he actually says is, each one has his own gift. And I think often we make a mistake, whether married or single, sometimes looking at singleness, not so much a gift, but a curse. One single that I met with and talked to said, sometimes they're asked questions like, well, have you tried getting set up with somebody? Have you been on many dates? Have you tried online dating? As if her singleness was something that needed to be cured. It's not a biblical view. It's cultural, but it's not how the Bible lays out the great dignity there is and the great opportunity to being single. The nice thing about scripture is it does not decrease the value in either life status to increase the worth and the dignity of others. Scripture is clear. Marriage is a wonderful gift. It shows God's love story in some profound ways that Jeff took us through earlier on in this uh, last month and this month in the series. Children are wonderful blessings. But there is great dignity and great worth to singleness. And it should not be viewed as something to be escaped at all costs as quickly as possible. Paul actually goes on later in the chapter and says, you know what, there are actually some opportunities and advantages that a married person doesn't have. He said, a married man, a married woman, he has to be anxious about his family. He has to worry and to care about what's going on about him. His attentions can often be divided. That is not always the case for someone that is single and can be unencumbered to like, okay, God's leading me here, I'm going to go. I knew a friend of mine who when he was younger, he was a young professional. He felt a call to ministry, went to seminary, felt passionate about it, really felt God laying on his heart, I need to go be a missionary in Africa. And he went and told his wife, I really feel like God wants to send us to be missionaries in Africa. And she said, that's funny, God didn't tell me that yet. (laughs) It's an interesting conversation where she was like, I don't know, that's not not what my intent is picking up. And in a very interesting conversation, Uh, example both of the freedom a single person would have that he did not have but also an amazing example of a godly loving husband he said you know what you're right and if God hasn't told you that we're not going to go because I love you I care for you and I want you to love and know the Lord more well the cool end of the story is that in a few years God eventually did change their heart and they went to be missionaries in Africa came back and have done all sorts of interesting and amazing things since then but he had to care for his wife he couldn't just say All right, well, I'm going. You stay here and have fun. Not a good choice. So there's dignity for both. And we would do better to recover a scriptural view of both singleness and of marriage. And not to look at marriage as this prize to be won of you have elevated yourself to the higher status of living now. And viewing singleness as someone's incomplete waiting to meet their other half and become a whole person, like somehow they're going around living a half-life. It's not what a biblical view of singleness is. So what does that mean for us? Well, one, it's probably always a good idea to remember that if something was good enough for Paul and it was good enough for Jesus, it can't be that bad a thing. Just keep that in the back of your mind. But some takeaways from that, I think, are that when we interact with one another, we probably need to be a little bit careful with our words. 
many of the singles I talk to say it's really hard when people make assumptions. Assumptions that I do want to get married, or I don't want to get married, or I do want to be set up, or I don't want to be set up. I think we would do a lot better if instead of making assumptions, we just learned to listen a little bit more. To ask questions, to sit with someone and say, what has your life been like? Tell me about your story. What does it look like for you to go through life as you have in the ways that God has led you and the things that he has taught you? I'm listening. Tell me your story. Instead of assuming that we know what their experience has been like because they fit a category that we happen to know in our minds. I think another takeaway is that often we would probably do better if we interacted with people based on their personhood and not their status. That's not... You know, Joe Smith over there, the widowed father of three. That's Joe, the image bearer of God, who has the spirit of the Lord within him that I can get to know as a real, true person, where that is part of his story, but that is not all of who he is. We're covering the value and the dignity of singleness. Interacting with personhood, not status. Asking questions and learning to listen and not assuming be some pretty good places for us to start. Okay, so singleness is great, and every single should be happy and feel like they're free to do whatever they want and live for the Lord, right? And there's no struggle or no problem at all. Okay, that's clearly what I am not saying. And let me push pause and say that clearly. For many people who are married, and for many people who are single, whether divorced, widowed, never married, there can be deep Longing. There can be deep longing for companionship. There can be deep longing to be known, to be loved, to have someone else to go through life with. Deep longing, and that is not wrong. And if you talk to someone in deep longing, your job is not to kill that and tell them it's all going to be okay because Jesus loves them, but to walk with them, to listen, and to be the hands and feet of Christ in caring for them. There is also deep lament that is possible here. Lament of wounds that have been suffered, of betrayals that may have been faced, of things lost, of childbearing that hasn't happened. Deep lament from both singles, from married, from everyone here, and deep longing. And you know what? That is a very mature Christian response to life. It is not a sign of immaturity because we have the whole book of the Psalms. And many of the Psalms are almost embarrassing at how directly they vent their emotions to God. God, where are you? Why have you betrayed me? Why are all these knuckleheads succeeding when it feels like I'm just getting the stuffing beat out of me every day? And I think in Scripture we have an invitation that it is perfectly acceptable to lament and to long. And so don't hear me say that that's not appropriate if you're single to have those feelings. Embrace them, work through them, work through them in community and let them take you to Christ. Because ultimately, for all of us, for every one of us, there is no other human in the world that is going to satisfy your deepest longings. There is no other human in the world that is going to heal the deep wounds of your heart because it took God himself coming down for you. And so for all of us, our deepest longings have to be met the fact that in the fact that Christ has come to love you, to say, you were a rebel against me, but I have died for your sins to make you my own. Come follow me. 
Let me be your father, you be my child, and I will love you. The answer to our deepest laments has been knowing, knowing that even if we feel pain in this life till the day we die, the fact that Christ died and he rose again from the dead means that he will heal every wound. And we may not see it here. We may lament and long till the day we die, but he will wipe away tears one day and he will heal every wound. So it is perfectly acceptable to long, to lament, to do that in community, but to let them drive you to Christ. To lament and to long at an understanding, compassionate Savior who cares for you. So there's great dignity into it. The second point, I think, that comes out in verse 17, let me just read it again to refresh you. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. The second point we see is that Scripture calls us to be faithful wherever we find ourselves. When Christ comes to you, when he makes you his own, when you call him your Lord, you are called to be faithful wherever you find yourself. And Paul says some very interesting things. If you continue reading in the verses, he says, are you a bondservant? Are you living in servitude? Don't let that trouble you. If you can get your freedom, get your freedom. You should. You are free in Christ. But serve faithfully wherever you find yourself. I'm also not saying that singleness is like being in slavery. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But the fact is, married, singled, widowed, divorce, in high school, elementary, wherever you find yourself, you are called to be faithful right there. And sometimes we can fall into the trap as humans that life is going to be better as soon as blank happens. Once one of those Powerball tickets pays off, life's really going to be okay. Now, I hate to burst your bubble, but statistics probably say that you'll end up bankrupt. Sorry. But we think, oh, once I get married, or once my spouse actually starts acting like they're supposed to, or once I'm able to have kids, then I'm really going to be fulfilled. Then life's really going to be what it's supposed to be for me, and I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to be happy. And when we do that, we miss the fact that God is calling us to be where we are right now. And that he meets us there, and he calls us to serve faithfully with the resources, with the relationships, and with the access that he has given us today. Not once we get to some perceived destination that will make everything okay, but today, wherever we find ourselves, even if it is in a place of deep struggle and lament, what does it look like to be faithful here, now, today? So for all of us, we need to ask ourselves, what are the resources of time that you have? Maybe you're in a place in life where you've got a lot more time, where you have a lot more access and resources. How can you use that to love the body well, to expand the kingdom of God? Maybe you are surrounded by diapers, bottles, and little ones, and that's all you can think about. How has God called you to be faithful in that fun, in that chaos, and wherever you are? What does it look like for you to love faithfully with the little minds and the hearts that he's put in front of you every day? Be faithful wherever you find yourself. I think one big takeaway we have is don't waste the time that we have waiting for something better. If you're single and want to get married, great. Grow in Christ now. 
Learn to serve now. Be faithful wherever you are. We have people that are doing this amazingly well already. I know uh, a group of people that go out to lunch most Sundays, and they're always really good about looking around. Is there anybody off by themselves? And they kind of just net them in and say, okay, you're going to come to lunch with us and be part of our group if you want it. Being faithful with where they are, looking around. I think that if you happen to be married and you think or have thought, like, this is going to be the answer to my problems. This is where I'm going to find my identity. This is what's going to make life okay and make me okay. You're probably doing it wrong. If you're single and you think, man, this is great. I have no obligations on my time. I have no responsibilities to other people. And I can live the life of my dreams right now. You're also probably doing it wrong. Because scripture calls us in Galatians 3 to use our freedom to lovingly serve one another. So what would it look like for all of us wherever we find ourselves, to develop a kingdom-first mindset that looks around and asks the question, question, okay, where does God have me right now? What are the resources he has given me of time, of relationships? And then to pray and say, God, how would you want me to serve faithfully here? God, what does it look like for me to embrace the fact that your story is bigger than my story and how can I join you in it? And then to be bold enough to take action. Singleness is not purgatory. There is great glory there. We're all called, whatever our status, to serve faithfully where God has us. Now let me, before we jump into the final point, I'm going to read another passage of scripture. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Corinthians 12. If you're relying on your bulletin, I apologize. It was too long, so I didn't put it in because I thought six-point font wouldn't be fun for you to read this morning. So chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. Hear the word of God. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the many members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, dis, dis, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the last point I want to land on today is we would do well to remember that the church is one family, not a collection of individual family units. We are one family, not a group of little families who all happen to get together on Sunday mornings. And I fear that if we're not careful, sometimes our culture is going to dictate how we do church more than Scripture will. Because our culture tells us, this is my family, that's your family, and we can wave and we can talk, but like, stay on your side of the line. And I will take care of my stuff, and you take care of your stuff, and we'll get along, and as long as we don't get too close, everything will be fine. Because this is me, and I do me, and I have autonomy for my world, and you have autonomy for your world, and that's great and good. That's not really what Scripture just said, is it? Scripture says you are, how many times was the word one in there? You are one body. You are one family. You have one spirit. There are no lines between our families. And I think we would do well to remember that and to kind of let our protectionistic guard down and say, what would it look like if we looked around and took stock of who doesn't have a family around them? And how can we love them and how can we bring them in? There should be no strangers or stragglers in the family of God. It shouldn't be. Because what did Jesus pray in his high high priestly prayer? That they would be one. Just as the Father and the Son are one. One family. Let me just fire off a couple observations of what that text that we just read says. There's one body... And every part is gifted for the mutual good. There are no ungifted people in the church. Sorry. God gave you gifts to be used for the benefit of all around you. We are not all the same. And that is a good thing. And that is a biblical thing. We have different experiences. We have different status. Life has brought us to other places. And that is perfect, beautiful, and biblical. We need one another. There are no indispensable parts in the body. Try living life without a heart. It's going to be challenging. The picture here is you need every part of the body around you here. There are no spare parts in the family of God. And we are called to share in the suffering and the rejoicing of one another. Which means if we see someone over there who is suffering, who we know like they're having a hard go of things, it is not really an appropriate response to be like, man, gosh, that looks tough. Just slide over here where I don't have to worry, see, or think about that. We're not given that option. What scripture says is we have to go along over there and say, I'm with you. You look like you're hurting. Let me be with you in that moment. Let me be with you in that pain. Not to fix it, not to make it better because I am not Jesus. I can't do that. But to share in your suffering, to mourn with you, to lament with you, and to remind you of how much you're loved by Christ. What would it look like if we functioned more as one family than a collection of families? I think it means we wouldn't have anybody who walked in and said, I don't feel like I belong here. They wouldn't really have time to get that far before we were trying to pull them into our family. Not creepily, but in the love of Christ. I think it means we have to get here by understanding the gospel. 
Shocking, right? But if we understand that every one of us started out as an outsider, every one of us started out apart from the family of God, and he graciously came in and said, I am going to make a way by covering your sins with my own death so that you can be my child. Come, be in my family. If we get that, if we understand that, we are going to want that for other people. We are going to want to mimic that and say, you need a family. Let us love you. Let us care for you. In the single folks I talked to, I think every single one said, there has been a powerful time in my life when a family has basically adopted me and pulled me in. I was talking to David Castor after this. He said, for Christmas Eve this year, I had a family to go with. Christmas Day, I had a family to be with. He says, and it really makes a difference. What would it look like if we let the walls down and saw other people around us and said something as simple as, come have a meal with us. We've got an extra table, or we've got an extra place at the table. You may have an extra table too, but and then invite six people over. But come, have a meal with us. Hey, I'm going on an errand. I'm running to the store. Do you want to come along? Hey, I'm working on the yard today. Do you want to come over and help? Free labor. <laughs> but to invite people, be in our world, share life with us, find support here. I think Orangewood does a pretty good job of this, but I think there's still so much room to grow to let our walls down and to have a biblical family, not a cultural collection of family units. Now, what I'm suggesting also invites a certain amount of risk. There can be awkward conversations when you say, come over to our house, and they're like, I can't, I'm busy today. That doesn't mean you're free from like not initiating with other people ever again because you did it the one time. But there can be awkward conversations. There can be risks. Sometimes we'll say dumb things. Sometimes we'll misstep. And I think to be one family, we have to just go ahead and own, that's going to happen and that's okay. Jesus still loves us. We can have awkward conversations and not freak out because the gospel is strong enough and powerful enough. But what would it look like to take risks? To ask to be a part of a family? To ask to connect with people? Now, spoiler alert, this is why we do community groups. Because we were not called to go through life alone. We were called to carry each other's burdens, to encourage each other, to walk with one another. And I know for my group, it's been a really powerful thing, the group that I'm in, to be able to share some stuff, to be able to walk through life. And if you're not in a group, get in one. Let people love you. It's a good thing. We're called to it. Well, one of the things that one family does, a family of God does, is that we listen to each other. And so I have prepared kind of a best of, a highlight of a few of the points that when I met with singles, one of the questions I asked is, hey, what are some things I really should make sure I shouldn't say today? Or what are some things that people have said to you that maybe have been hurtful and maybe haven't been helpful? So I'm just going to list a couple of just, hey, this is just so you know, just so you know someone's experience. One said, assumptions are really hard. Don't, bec- don't assume that because I'm single, I'm really busy living, living this glamorous life so you never invite me to do things. I'd be thrilled to have a pizza and movie night with your family. Another said, it's really hard assuming that you know what I'm going through without ever asking me. Another said, it's really hard when people assume that marriage is some prize that you win. 
Because what does that mean about me? Another, it's unhelpful when people ask questions like, why aren't you married? In case you needed that. There you go. Some other things that are unhelpful. Someone saying, as soon as you let go and are satisfied by God alone, he'll bring you that special someone. Well, you don't know that, and you don't know what God's doing. And so sometimes that's not helpful to assume. Saying things like, you're too picky. I mean, for some of us, we need to repent. For others, we can chuckle. But it's helpful to know. Saying things like, you don't know how good you have it. Marriage is so hard. Not helpful. Or if you're single, saying to your married friends, you don't know how good you have it. Singleness is so hard. I think we can each say there are certain days when we need more grace of God than others. There is faithful struggle wherever we find ourselves. So not assuming the roses are redder somewhere else. Trying to tell someone that Jesus is enough and so they shouldn't hurt or long is not helpful and is actually hurtful. Giving a pat answer to shut something down because you feel uncomfortable talking about something that's hard and painful, it's really hurtful. Longing and grief are not unspiritual. And that's just a little aside. Sometimes we do better to just listen and to ask questions and to be okay being uncomfortable. When often we try to fix a problem and tell somebody, it's okay because, insert whatever you happen to say, a lot of times we're doing that to make ourselves feel better, not to make the other person feel better. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to stop and to look at them and say, that looks really hard. I don't fully understand it, but I'm really sorry. I love you. Can I sit with you? And would you like to talk about it? And if they don't, sit with them. Be with people. Trying to fix the problem often is not helpful. And it's hard, and I mentioned this earlier, when there's a model that to be a good Christian, you should be married and have kids. And when people don't fit this model clearly, sometimes the church doesn't know what to do with them. We have a great church. We also have some room to grow as a family and how we love one each other and how we care for one another. But the good news is we have the bond of Christ that unites every one of us. And so there's so much opportunity for us to grow, to learn to love one another better. Now, let me just say one thing. If you are here today and you are single, know that we love you. Know that you are deeply valued here. Know that we need you. We need your gifts, your talents, your time. We are incomplete if you don't show up in this family. And if there are ways that we've been hurtful, we're sorry. And we want to learn to love and to grow and to better be the aroma of the kingdom of God which is coming. Also, if I said something hurtful, or not quite accurate, feel free to follow up with me. Talk to me so that we can learn and grow together as a family of God. There's dignity in both. Singleness and marriage are both presented as gifts. 
Christ comes to us and redeems us and calls us to be faithful wherever we are. And we have to ask ourselves, what does faithfulness look like for me right here, right now? We are called to be one family, one body that loves each other well, that rejoices together, that suffers together, that carries each other's burdens together. Would that be what God does in our midst? Because Christ has come and moved towards us all and brought us into his family. And would we single, married, whatever, would we be a beautiful reflection of that because of what Christ has already done on our behalf? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, you are good. And you love us so well. And would we remember that our our deepest needs, our deepest longings are solely met in you. And thank you that though we have been so broken by our own sin and by the fall, you come and restore dignity to us wherever we are. And each one of us, wherever we find ourselves today, if we trust in you, if Jesus, you are our savior, you call us child, friend, family. Help us to be that family of God. Help us to love one another well because we have been so richly loved by you. And would you glorify yourself in how we care for one another. We ask this in the name of our loving Savior Christ. Amen.